I'm Sheila Vashi, an investor at Basiset Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund investing in founders that transform the way people work. I'm excited to bring you Hypergrowth, The Early Years, a show that dives into the strategy, channels, and hires that kickstarted the growth journey of the most successful companies. Hey, folks, I am thrilled to welcome Zhenya Loganov to Hypergrowth The Early Years. Zhenya is currently the CRO at Miro and has had a pretty amazing career, I have to say. At Miro, he was one of the first leaders on the go-to-market side and has steered that business through a very interesting time through COVID, which I'm excited to get into more later today. And prior to Miro, Zhenya was a COO of Segment. And before that, he ran the user operations teams at Dropbox, which is actually where we work together. Zhenya, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Welcome. Sheila, thank you for very much for having me. So let's start a little bit with your background. You have joined and led some high growth companies at the earliest stages. So tell us a little bit about your background and what you focus on specifically. And let's spend time on Segment and Miro. Sure. So my background is slightly non-traditional, as you can hear from my accent. I'm from outside of the U.S., uh, moved to the U.S. about 10 years ago. Uh, before that, um, was born and raised in Russia. Um, before going into technology, I was spent my time in finance and consulting and then figured out like the most exciting place to be is probably Silicon Valley and new software companies. Then joined Dropbox, and then after that, um, joined Segment and Miro. So it's Segment. I spent three years building the go-to-market organization. So that would be sales, marketing, customer success, uh, BD, operations team. Um, also spent a bit of time uh, running the finance part of the company as well. And at Miro, over the last year and a half, um, I spent my time also building uh, the go-to-market side of the company. So sales, customer success, operations, uh, BD, and analytics teams. Great. And so at both Segment and Miro, as you mentioned, you've basically built, you know, most of the go-to-market motion from the ground up. And as you know, that's what we spend talking time talking about on hypergrowth. So excited to dig in that further. And at different times, you also manage the self-serve and enterprise businesses there. Is that right? Uh, that's right. So I joined both companies uh, sort of slightly after the companies hit 10 million in ARR, and I'm responsible for um, all of revenue. So this being said, we can talk a bit more about sort of self-serve ownership and where it was and where I believe um, the right ownership is. Uh, at Miro, it's on the product side, uh, which I believe where it should be. Um, I mostly deal uh, with enterprise and uh, high-edge customers. So th- that's great. And thank you for clarifying that. Let's talk a little bit about the go-to-market motion for each of those companies. They're both so relevant and pioneering. So we'd love to hear both at Segment and Miro, what did the go-to-market motion look like and how did it evolve over time? Yeah, so I think both companies started from self-serve motion, right? The first customers were acquired through self-serve. Self-serve was a very large part of the business uh, when I joined either one. And still remains at Miro, a very large part of the business. I believe that segment is a very important both uh, revenue uh, driver, but also source for source for enterprise customers. Um, I think where I spend most of my time is to kind of help the companies evolve from that self-serve focused motion and a lot of SMB customers, maybe mid-market customers to get enterprise ready to get into sort of the true enterprise customers who pay you more than a million dollars a year, who have tens of thousands of employees, um, and uh, to go through this evolution of sort of product marketing approach, sales approach, as well as culture in the company um, to get the companies to, you know, hundred plus stage. So I'd love to expand on that a little bit more and understand you've seen really 
every type of, of growth and, and business. When is self-serve right for your business? And so many companies are taking that approach today. And when is the right time to start introducing a more high-touch enterprise approach? Yeah. So I think I'm like for me in the self-serve camp, uh, if your product is possible to introduce to customers in self-serve motion, do it. Uh, it's so helpful for just refining the product and uh, figuring out what is the right way to serve the customers. But also later on, it becomes the cornerstone of growth engine for the company. It's much easier to acquire customers when they can actually try your product and use your product before they start to use it at scale at larger companies. And I think like most companies that you know have an opportunity to have a self-serve product these days have a self-serve product, um, especially companies founded by you know, product or engineering leading uh, founders or based in the Silicon Valley. I think the, uh, you know, there is a lot more diversion on um, when uh, do you need to start an enterprise? Do you need to start an enterprise motion at all and so on? So I think one of the things that I learned at Dropbox was that we really should have started the enterprise effort um, probably earlier and invested uh, a lot more to sort of be committed to the enterprise uh, for a longer period of time of the, you know, you talk, take, Top 10 software companies, only one of them made most of their money on um, SME mid-market into it. And everybody else has most of their business in, in the enterprise. So if you really want to build a large company that would make at least billion dollars in revenue, you really need to invest in enterprise at some point. I think the right point for most companies is around actually 10 million uh, when you want to start investing in true enterprise motion. Um, and so that in you know three or four years when you really need it to supplement your growth, uh, it is ready for you. So that's a really helpful rule of thumb for people. Around 10 million is when you need to start thinking about building the enterprise business. Why is it 10 million? And how once you've once you've started to think about enterprise, how do you go about that? Maybe maybe focus on your time at Miro. What are you now that you've reached the point where you want to start building enterprise, how are you gonna do it? Yeah, totally. So I think 10 million is kind of a rule of thumb. You know, if you're a founder, you're at 10 million, you probably are hoping to triple in a year, uh, you know, maybe double from there, double again, and maybe start growing, you know, a little slower than double the year after that. So it gets you from about 10 million to about 200 million in just four years. And uh, if your core market is either SMB customers or really venture-backed technology companies that use a lot of software, that use your software, then that market is starts to tap out at about 100 or 200 million. So unless you have a true enterprise motion to support you at that stage, you're going to plateau. And a lot of companies plateau at around 100 or 200 for whatever reason, mostly for the reason of not being ready in the enterprise. And then you kind of, that's it. You're, you, know, you have a much lower valuation if you're not growing and the exit opportunities for you are limited because you're not really a public ready company at that stage. So the... Enterprise motion takes like years and years to build. So when I'm saying enterprise, I don't mean, you know, hire people who know how to sell into enterprise and sell to CIOs. I mean, really kind of understand what is the value proposition of the enterprise, build a product that um, will satisfy that value and will solve the problems that enterprise customers have. Build a marketing motion so that you can reach those enterprise buyers um, through the channels that, you know, they use to, to read and get informed and um, get introduced to companies. Um, build a sales motion with people who know how to sell to the enterprise, uh, who have this DNA, who have done this before. And I think most importantly, I think just this translation of culture of the company from, you know, product-focused or engineering-focused culture in the early stages to a business culture that also, you know, where the company really loves the enterprise and doesn't treat it as a necessary evil. It takes a lot of time. 
So it takes about you know three to four years. So that's that's sort of the timeline. Do you think that transition is even possible or easy to achieve? A lot of times that either self-serve or SMB DNA is so ingrained in a company, it's hard to bring a, an outbound sales motion into a culture like that. I mean, I feel like it's been parodied on shows like Silicon Valley and, and others. So yeah. h- how, do you, how do you change the culture to fit more of an outbound enterprise model? Yeah, I definitely think it's possible. Uh, it's definitely not easy. Um, I think the one most important thing is the CEO, the founder needs to commit to loving the enterprise and being there and really kind of understanding that the future of the company depends on on it. Um, there was a saying somewhere that I really like that, you know, CEO's job is to make maybe one or two decisions a year. So one of the most important decisions the CEO needs to make is to decide, yeah, we're going to be an enterprise company at some point. And that means that, you know, it's not going to be a second thought for the CEO when they're talking to engineers or product people and marketing people and salespeople and that, you know, they're committed to changing the culture. I think the culture changes slowly when we're saying enterprise sales, you know, we don't really mean these days purely traditional top-down enterprise seller sales where you you know, go play golf and travel and that's how we close deals. They don't think that software is sold this way anymore or, you know, most of the newer software products. We still are relying on deep user adoption in the enterprise, right? So you sell to early adopters in those enterprise companies um, who bank on your software, who then help you expand, help you understand the requirements of their larger organization. It can be, you know, director level buyer somewhere. And then over time, uh, you create enough value so that um, you know you get introduced to CIOs and uh, whoever's the buyer for your software CMOs and cover cover that enterprise fully. So I think it can be a very natural transition. I just it does require time. It does require time for your you know for your engineers to meet your larger and larger customer to empathize with them. It does require time for people to meet your sales team and meet uh, you know people who are of sales, you know, junior salespeople and then more senior salespeople and then salespeople who've been selling for 20 years and understand what value they bring to the table and how uh, they can be helpful for your company. Let's talk a little bit more about the target customer and how that influences your journey to selling to bigger businesses. Very different target customer at Segment and at Miro. How has that influenced the way that you've thought about go-to-market strategy? Yeah, definitely very different customer. Um, I think at least the, the end buyer is very different. I think it's segment. Um, well, first of all, when you sell to engineers, most of you sold to engineers is just a very different composition of your sales team. It's a very different uh, sales approach. So, for example, sales engineering was for us an extremely important function, arguably more important than the core sales team itself. Uh, you know, technical marketing was extremely important. The blog posts that founders and our engineers wrote um, in the segment blog was one of the most important go-to-market um, efforts that the company did. The uh, I think what's uh, how it influenced go-to-market strategy, like first and foremost, the biggest difference between segment and Miro is that the market size, uh, you know, segment total market size is probably less than $1 billion total, which means that if you want to be a large enough company and we wanted to be a large enough company that is capable of going public if we wanted to, um, we needed to figure out how do we cover most of the market. In most of the market, we solve data challenges and data challenges mostly are in the enterprise. So we really need to figure out how do we get to that scale faster. At Miro, the market is much larger, you know, probably tens of billions of dollars, but also has you know, is on the radar of every single large software company in the world, like you know Microsoft and Google and Salesforce and Atlassian and Adobe and everybody else. So uh, it's a very populated market, uh, right? And we expect 
very different dynamics, very different competitive dynamics in that market. So influence how we think about building our own capabilities too. That's really interesting, Jenya. Thank you for sharing. I want to go back to something you had said earlier around how you set up the initial go-to-market team. And you mentioned hiring marketing, sales, et cetera. In your time at Miro, how have you structured your team? What, what roles did you hire first and how do they work together? So I think the structure in the end, right right now, if you look at our you know, org chart um, of people who report to me, it's a very traditional structure. There is sales separately from customer success, separately from operations analytics. I think the approach that I used to hiring at Miro, though, is different from the one that I used at Segment uh, in that I felt that I have enough time to hire top-down instead of bottom-up. So at Segment, when I joined, I hired you know, first-level management and second-level management and VPs. Um, and at Miro, I felt that I have... You know, I can afford maybe spending four to six months on hiring leaders um, of key teams. Uh, we had few teams had strong leaders, but teams like sales or analytics uh, or sales operations didn't have, uh, you know, first, you know, highest level management, then second level management, uh, and even ICs on many teams. I decided I'll take a pause. I'm not going to hire, you know, 25 ICs and first line managers. I'm going to go and spend time on hiring three to four really strong leaders uh, who will be there with the company and will be able to build their own teams. It was sort of slower in the beginning, but much faster um, when we needed to scale much faster. So that was one bet uh, that I felt like I was lucky to be able to make uh, in the company. And uh, one of other things uh, that we did at Miro, it really also is dictated by uh, you know, structure of our business. At uh, other companies, Dropbox and Segment, I think we invested a lot in the go-to-market in the U.S., before we went uh, to other markets. Uh, at Miro, we are a global company from the beginning, so we invested across uh, the globe earlier here. Um, so that's one of the things that, you know, our sales team will have, a sales team that is focused on the US and sales team that is focused on Europe, first of all, and is are thinking about what they'll be doing in um, Asia Pacific market as well, much sooner than some of the other companies would. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. And for those early sales teams, as you were scaling them up and, and you mentioned, you know, you started with kind of the, the leadership, how did you incentivize those teams initially? Because it was, again, it was a big sea change in the way that you thought about the business. They probably couldn't go door to door knocking on enterprise customers on day one. What, what were those early targets or early incentives that you gave them? So I think, again, like when we are talking about Miro evolving into the enterprise, we are not talking about drastic changes. It's very hard to do drastic changes to, uh, you know, you used to get all of your pipeline from inbound from your self-serve customers, and then now you're suddenly going, selling top-down. We are not doing this right now. I think what we are doing is we are trying to making our self-serve user base more and more powerful as our source of revenue in the enterprise. So we're thinking about, okay, what are the accounts that can really be much larger accounts for us? What do we need to do to move the most important teams and those customers uh, on Miro so that from there we can expand to the larger company? How do we think about um, uh, like C-level execs at those companies and them using Miro? Um, and you know, we found that that is very helpful to expand um, across the company. So we are sort of supercharging our self-serve motion instead of saying, okay, this is one line of business and we're going to build from the ground up an entirely different line. I think it's a much healthier way to do it. That's great. And that makes a lot of sense. And and really, through your experiences, you're kind of the, the premier expert on taking a self-serve business and, and growing it into an enterprise business over time. I'd love your hot take on some of the other famous product-led growth companies uh, at the moment. What, what do you think, who's who's doing it well? 
And I guess who has some opportunities? I probably would like hesitate to name specific names. I would say that, you know, there are several companies that are slow, that are like banking a lot on self-serve motion um, and uh, or like very large in terms of revenue and different number of employees, but still are mostly on the self-serve motion who underinvest in the enterprise. And I think the biggest mistake there is like understanding how much time it really takes to get to the enterprise. I think the thinking is, oh, when we need it, we'll ramp it up in a year. It really takes multiple years. So a lot of times I see now, so there's like a class of companies that is super hot startups that grow extremely fast from zero um, dollars in revenue to like 100 million in revenue or 200 million in revenue. And every next company grows to that level like faster and faster because covering venture-backed companies, you know, that motion becomes known and very, very efficient. The problem that some of those companies will be facing is that like they will have a slowdown at some point when they are tapped out of that market. And if you don't have an ability to cover much larger markets, like you will need to take a break and invest in building it, or you risk breaking your culture um, in you know trying to bring into the company that's very focused on customer and self-serve motion, top-down enterprise sellers, for example. And that's a very, very hard transition. You mentioned a change from a product thinking perspective as well, once you start to serve enterprise customers, that can be a hard transition also because they have different needs. Sometimes they can pull your roadmap in a different direction. How have you balanced that in the companies you've, you've helped to get over that, that next step? So I think, first of all, like at both Segment and Miro, that mostly is on the product engineering organization and the founders. Um, so both Peter and Tito at Segment and uh, here Andre and the early product team and Vadim who recently joined to run engineering are doing amazing work to bring the product into the enterprise. One thing that is sort of a prerequisite, you need to be able to run several different initiatives on the product team at the same time. So some of them focused on the horizontal product and your end users, and some of them focused on building more value uh, in the enterprise, like until a certain scale is just very hard to do. Uh, so that's why you need you know, some amount of revenue, some scale of the company before you can invest in the enterprise. And then when you do, I think there is a usual, there's kind of a list of standard enterprise requirements uh, like security, how do you manage your your users, um, some of the provisioning, some you know data residency things. So nearly every company that are very similar. Uh, but I think the more important work is the more long-term understanding of how your value, value of your product is different in the enterprise versus maybe smaller companies. So for example, a segment when we thought about the value enterprise, we discovered that there is, you know, they would want to see that product in slightly different shape, which led to two huge product launches, um, uh, protocols and personas uh, launch at Segment, which is now huge um, parts of the overall product, which really is serving mostly the needs of the enterprise customers. And uh, if we didn't have those products, we would have a very hard time uh, going into the enterprise. Same on Miro. Uh, we discovered that you know the, the kind of how people use it, the product when they have a couple of hundred people on the product versus, you know, a couple of thousand, if not 10,000 people in product is slightly different um, and they require, you know, very different um, product functionality in it. How did you come to that realization? So, I mean, that's not a small change to make on the product side, launching two new big products. Was that through conversations with the sales team? How did you get to that point where you realized that for, for either of these companies, there needed to be a different product for enterprise customers? Yeah, so I think, uh, so we're talking about, you know, segment launching two new products. Um, I think the most important part there was that 
the engineering uh, and product leadership was very, very close to the enterprise. It wasn't actually the feedback from customer success or the sales team that brought us to realization of those needs. It was the direct communication between product managers and our enterprise, early enterprise customers and engineering leaders and early enterprise customers that led to those realizations. Um, it, you know, bear in mind, you know, who our customers were, they're also engineers, right? Segment we sold to engineers. So that uh, conversation was a very natural one to have. The um, But the whole sort of culture that Peter and Tito created where the engineering product team was extremely customer facing uh, was most helpful to uh, to understand what the needs of the customers really are. That's another great insight. It's so important for those the product and engineering teams to be customer facing to come to a realization like that around building for a new type of customer, like like an enterprise customer. Yeah, we had like we had our engineering leaders, senior engineering leaders, fly with the sales team um, and talk to customers. You know, fly to New York, talk to five customers, come back. Uh, share with the engineering team what they found. So that was like very, very helpful. Now I'd like to shift questions a little bit and reflect a bit on your time at these amazing organizations. What were some mistakes that you made and what would you have done differently? So I think like I made a few hiding mistakes. Um, uh, I had some, so for example, I strongly preferred strong generalists uh, at first, and especially at Dropbox, like Dropbox was famous uh, first for hiring very strong generalists, not specialists in their fields. And I think over the time at Second and Mira, I found that you can hire great specialists as well, and they can be much more helpful to the organization if they really, really know what they're doing, especially in you know few fields, you know, obviously fields like legal, right? But also analytics, operations, uh, sales, I found that hiring specialists oftentimes is very helpful. So that was one early mistake. I think that I spent a lot of too much time, uh, not too much time hiring, but I think I hired slower than I should have, even at segment, right? Uh, I think at Miro, I hired like three times faster than I did at segment. And mostly, probably I knew the profiles better that I was looking for and had a better network. Uh, but also, I realized how much a delay in hiring a senior leader for like half a year impacts the whole company. And that's not a cost that a company should marry. How do you balance, though, spending time finding the right person while keeping the bar high? I guess, like, how do you make that trade-off? Because sometimes that extra three to six months can help you find an amazing person that takes your organization to the next level. H- how do you balance that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I do at Miro, um, I created and run uh, the hiring manager training that every hiring manager at Miro from you know sales to engineering goes through. And one, the first thing that I talk tell people, if you have more than one person to hire on your team, spend half of your time hiring. And that to me is the only trade-off. Like there is not really a trade-off. You cannot decide, well, yeah, I'm going to hire like a lower quality person, but we'll do it faster. The highest bar is an absolute requirement. The only way out of it, you drop a lot of other things that you do and you spend a lot of time hiring. Um, I found that sort of myself included, a lot of managers tend to think that hiring is one of the things that they should be doing. It really is pretty much the only thing that they should be doing uh, or like the number one by far thing they should be doing, scaling the impact of their team and uh, you know getting the support that the other teams need. Uh, that to me is the only solution. Let's talk a little bit about how COVID has accelerated the business at Miro. What what have the, la- the past few months been like at, at the company? <laughs> Definitely has been crazy. So we grew much faster uh, than we did, did uh, in the COVID times. 
I think what I didn't realize when I joined the company was that the early product team and the founding team built a product for somewhat of a sleeping market. Uh, so there was a huge need in a tool like Miro. It just most of people didn't realize it. And when everybody was forced to work from home, uh, basically everybody was looking for for a solution like it. So if you think of kind of evolution of collaborative software, uh, like from quill and paper to, you know, paper and pen, paper and typewriter to, you know, Google Docs, it's more or less the same format. You're like kind of getting the same exact result. And just in Google Docs, you get a sprinkled collaboration on top of this. And maybe you can have like five to 10 people collaborate in the same doc, but it's really like becomes cumbersome after 10 people. Um, and you need a new generation of collaboration uh, software that is built in with collaboration in first and then kind of the results to be produced second. So Miro is one example where uh, if you work remotely, if you have a team of you know, tens, if not hundreds of people working on a common canvas, being able to run basically all of your work in something that's very easy to use and very fast to, to adopt um, is extremely helpful. So you know, most of our customers and you know, we internally at the company, we spend most of our day on Zoom and in Miro. It's like there's Zoom open and Miro open at the same time. We talk to each other we and we collaborate and create something and, you know, keep it in Miro. So that's one. And that means that, you know, a lot of our customers, early customers realized that we saw huge expansion across all of our user base. Um, and a lot of people started looking for similar solutions and they discovered that whiteboarding uh, is one of those categories that uh, is uh, can solve those problems. Um, and we got a lot of new customers as well. So uh, frankly, over the last year, it's been a lot of, uh, kind of building to meet the demands uh, of the customers we had, which is sort of very similar to, uh, I think, what Zoom had um, this year. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you touched on this briefly, but your organization is really the poster child for how to work remotely. Uh, you've been remote first, really from the beginning. Relative to some of the other companies you've been at, how has being remote first influenced the company and the culture? So we, I'd say, I'd clarify, we are not necessarily remote first. We are a kind of distributed company from the beginning. So uh, nearly everyone at the company is in the office. We just have five large offices. Um, and our, like all of the company, including the exact team, is distributed across those five offices. So we have one in Russia, one in Amsterdam, one in San Francisco, LA, and Austin. And uh, what it means is that, uh, you know, even though everybody is in the office, all of your like the team that you work in always have somebody that is somewhere else in, you know, most of the time, few people. So every single meeting, even before COVID started, had a Zoom invite for us. Like every meeting, like you never knew who's going to be in the office physically, who's going to be in other locations, who's going to be working from home. So it was a very natural transition for us. Um, so, you know, the first hardships of lockdown, trying to hire people remotely was not really a hardship for us. We've done it before. Um, so it was an easy transition for us. Um, I think what we found in that model, uh, we found that this is a very different way to run the company from, uh, you know, maybe how typical Silicon Valley based company is being run and there are a lot of benefits to it. How is the culture different than having so many distributed offices so early on? Um, yeah, I think it's, again, uh, very different from most other companies I worked at. First of all, it's not a monolith culture. Um, I think one thing that we remember from very early days at Dropbox, it's like MIT dropout engineering culture uh, that is based in Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of, a lot of specifics. And even when the company companies get larger, it's like predominantly U.S. company that has a few other tentacles in other parts of the world. So 
here at Miro, from the beginning, we have like a significant portion of population that is based in Europe, significant portion in the US, uh, significant portion in Russia, and it creates a team that is truly diverse uh, in a way that like I haven't seen uh, diversity before. So some problems that are hot topics in the US would not be hot topics in Europe, for example, entirely, or vice versa. Some like assumptions about how to build a business uh, that people from the Silicon Valley bring are not really the assumptions that uh, people in Europe have and vice versa as well. So I find that we approach problems uh, from first principles more often than before. We have far fewer uh, sort of preconceived notions of what are the right things to do and not right things to do. Um, but also for the company as a whole, it makes, um, you know, it has a lot of benefits. So our ability to access talent um, outside of, you know, very competitive Bay Area has been amazing. Our ability to uh, run kind of lean team, lean company financially has been amazing as well. If you don't, uh, if you're not overexposed to um, very expensive locations too. So net-net, um, I found that, generally for companies it's very hard to commit to expanding to another office when everybody is so happy in just one office in one location but i found that if you do this step it takes some effort but it has immense um, benefit for the company that's excellent advice especially for founders who are early and are thinking about how to set up their team especially during covid thank you for that and and let's end on a couple more words of advice so for founders who are looking to hire early go-to-market leaders, especially founders who are looking to make the transition from self-serve to enterprise, what advice would you give them? So frankly, like the, when founders ask me, you know, the profile of the first sales person to hire or first sales leader to hire, my usual advice is to try to hire a sales leader who is not quite a sales leader, um, who is not necessarily a traditional salesperson. So looking for uh, people who have more of, say, consulting, MBA, operational, customer success background, but also have done sales management before, uh, I found to be kind of the ideal, the ideal world. What I like about that profile is that uh, people, are, those people, are not only motivated by growing revenue and uh, making money; they're motivated by building the company with you, with the founder, and figuring things out and figuring out the right motion. And they're also like familiar with how you figure out the right motion. So they solve just a much wider area of problems for you, but also they do need to have sales experience and understand, you know, how to set up quotas and how to uh, do a discovery call and how to um, find the right sales talent. So they need to have that. But, you know, if you have an opportunity to hire somebody who has some strong experience outside of sales and usual sales experience, that would be the best person to hire. That's great advice. Thank you. Now it is time for my favorite part of the show, which is the fire round. And so the way that this is going to work, Zhenya, is I'm going to basically shout questions at you and you have to answer right away within a few seconds. You have, you have no time to think about it. You ready? <laughs> okay, let's try it. All right. Question number one, what's your favorite sales or growth technology? Mm, I'd say like a combination of Segment plus Snowflake plus Looker um, has been the best for just to bring insights um, for me. Like Looker especially was most helpful. So I would say probably that they spent a lot of time in, in Looker. It's a good combo. Question number two, tell us a secret growth hack you've used. I think that uh, it's just hiring. Like there's not no big secret, like just over investing in hiring and doing a lot of that is probably the, has been the most impactful thing that I've used before. That's great. Question number three, what's the most helpful resource on growing a company? 
frankly, I found like peer groups to be extremely helpful. So you find, you know, three to five people who are doing roughly what you do at other companies that ideally are not competing with you. Either those are CEO founders, if you're a CEO founder, or those are CROs. Um, and you have regular calls with them, either the group or uh, one-on-ones, like monthly. Um, it's been extremely helpful. Like just companies go through similar challenges at roughly the similar timeline. And, you know, having those discussions like stimulates thoughts a lot. Um, that was super helpful. In addition to kind of all the books you can read, um, I think that was kind of the most helpful thing that I did. Good tips. What's your superpower? Probably, again, say hiring. Uh, again, because I kind of realized that it's probably the most important thing and I invested a lot of time in understanding how to do it right and how to do it fast. Um, so yeah, I'd say hiring. Sensing a common theme here. Maybe we'll make our yeah. next podcast together about hiring. I have about an hour worth of content on that. <laughs> okay, good to know. Last question. This is going to be a couple of questions, kind of like an overrated, underrated, but we're just going to do overrated because that's more fun. <laughs> What's the most overrated collaboration app in your view? I kind of found Loom to be most overrated. Frankly, I do use it, um, but I feel that I only use it uh, within Miro. I don't kind of use it in a bunch of tools. I think it should be, it's like, it's a feature, not a product. Um, sorry, Loom guys. Oh, finally getting a little spicy. I was waiting for that. What's the most overrated social media app? I'm not even sure. Um, I don't know. Like the only one that I have is probably LinkedIn and Instagram. Those are fine. Um not sure. So all the others that are not those two, basically. Probably. Yeah. I mean, Facebook, definitely, but everybody knows that. <laughs> what about tech trend? What's the most overrated trend in tech, according to you? It's big tech trends. I think like, I don't know, I'm going to say like segment party line. Uh, third party data is probably the most overrated tech trend that's been going on for what? 15, 10 to 15 years now. Uh, so generally like having your data being sold, yeah, is going to end soon within the next five years. Like so many changes that Facebook, Google, and others are making to that Apple uh, that, you know, it's going to change the entire marketing industry. Uh, so that's probably the most overrated trend. That's great. I would agree with that. Well, Jenya, thank you so much for the insights that you shared today. You talked to us about how to grow an enterprise business on top of a already growing self-serve one. You talked to us about target customer and how to think about that as building when you build your go-to-market motion. And you talked about hiring and how you've built a best-in-class team in a distributed model. So appreciate the time that you spent with us. Sheila, thank you so much again for having me. And where can people find you, Jenya? Oh, that's easy. That's um, LinkedIn. It's probably easiest or my first name at Miro.com is another way. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to hear from our amazing guest today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep in touch, please follow me on Twitter at Sheila Vashi or shoot me an email at Sheila at basisset.ventures. And if you want to hear more, we'll be posting episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud every week. So check it out. See you next week.